Welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I am here with Tyler Lambert. Hello. Hello. Three days until Christmas and it's just over a week until the end of the year and we need to talk about what just happened. Also, today I'll be sharing my interview with leading board director and author Dr. Kirsten Ferguson about her new book on leadership. So this was 2022. Thank you for listening. Hello, Tyler. How are you? It's been a little while since we both came together on the podcast. You've been a bit busy. I know. Look, I'm going to be bloody rusty, I think, on this one. Um, Yeah, it's been a while. It's been at least kind of five months or so. My baby, my youngest one, is now six months, which is a little bit baffling. But yeah, it has been. It's been a big year. It's been a big year work-wise. It's been a big year politically. It's been a big year personally. My house is just chaos right now. But, you know, we've hung down with my parents in Canberra and um, looking forward to Christmas in a couple of days. As you said, how are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I was reflecting on this time last year, just as, I mean, we've been looking at a bit of content that's kind of wrapping up the year, our key moments and things like that for Women's Agenda. And I was thinking how this time last year, we were all hunting rats COVID (laughs) tests. Remember how the case numbers were skyrocketing and everyone was getting COVID and everyone was worried about getting COVID, you know, just before Christmas. And It sort of feels like that right now as well. I mean, I'm not hunting for rats. Like I've got plenty of those. but um, I don't have COVID, but a very close family member of mine does have COVID right now. Literally we're three years into this and we're still like every Christmas. The last Christmas I had in Canberra was like two years ago and we had just escaped just prior to the lockdown um, in Sydney. I don't think I, you're meant to use that word. I know. Leaving lockdowns. But... If you want New South Wales government, but this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. And then you were in quarantine. Well, I was in quarantine. In Canberra. Yeah. yeah. The AFP came to my parents' house to check that my partner and I were in a single room together. And were you in that single room at that time? We actually were. Yes. Okay. Look, to be fair, we didn't actually move around very much. We were quite good at abiding by the very intense laws at that point but it was just a crazy Christmas and then the following year was also crazy and now you know here we are three years later and someone's got COVID fun times (laughs) and yet I did say to you that this year I feel for the first time in quite a long time more optimistic than I have done okay all right well that's good maybe we should start there so (laughs) I I wanted to note also that for next year we will be unveiling a new format and name for this podcast so in January that is coming and so we did kind of want to just leave things as they are to finalize 2022 so that's this this is the last episode of the women's agenda podcast but we will be calling it something else next year so that will come up in your feed next year and we're really excited about that we're working on all the bits and pieces around that at the moment but before we get there let's talk about 2022 and your optimism why are you so optimistic (laughs) I mean look so optimistic is probably a bit of an overstretch but I do think that this year was just you know more hopeful than it has been in a long time and we saw some really big wins, especially locally in Australia with the federal election. I thought that that was such a pivotal moment in time, watching the numbers of 
women, the numbers of teals take those seats and really show the agenda that most Australians have wanted for a long time, which is action on climate change. And finally, that was being held accountable and and people were coming out in force to represent that um, and people had an option to vote for that. So I thought that was really remarkable. I thought the federal election more broadly in terms of the policy agenda that was set, you know, it was a more diverse and equitable policy agenda than we've ever seen before. You know, we suddenly had a government that was willing to talk to us about paid parental leave, which, you know, by all accounts, I still think needs to go a lot further, but at least there was some progress there with, you know, the policy change around six months of paid parental leave offered by the government. There was, you know, this, well, climate change reform is again an overstretch. I think there's still a lot of room to grow, obviously, but I think that it is really encouraging to see a government that's actually willing to engage on these issues, engage with the right stakeholders, talk to the public about what's happening. And hopefully, you know, we do see that translate into harder policy reform in the next couple of years. I think that they're, you know, just wetting their feet at the moment and and hopefully that's what's on the horizon. Again, with childcare, you know, moving towards a universal system, I think will alleviate so much of this heavy burden on working families and see more women able to enter the workforce and and re-engage meaningfully in the workforce, um, which, you know, we know is so much better for the economy generally. So that is also really great. And the new industrial relations laws, there's just a lot more that's coming into play that I feel, you know, as a 32-year-old woman, I feel very optimistic about. And, I think by all accounts, this government has done a good job so far. You know, I'm I'm willing to note that governments sometimes, you know, fall apart quite quickly in Australia, but so far, so good. And it's nice to end the year feeling good about the country I'm living in and the way that it's being led. Yeah, it's been productive the past few months in terms of legislation and things going through and and yeah I would argue for more and I think that this isn't a reason to kind of sit back and think oh okay paid parental leave is done or childcare is done or climate change is done it is so not done (laughs) so and we will continue to you know really push for more especially on the the ladder there on climate change I think like but what we have seen is a really big step in terms of acknowledgement and like you said that wetting their feet and maybe there'll be more going into next year because there has to be more as well but at least we are talking about it and at least it is coming up and being shared and it was, you know, noted in the budget and like actually using the words. It's such a big shift. And internationally we have, you know, Australia is being now seen so differently than where we were at the beginning of the year. Yeah, and I think the way that the Prime Minister is actually engaging with other stakeholders across different governments as well and different political parties, you know, even the way that you know, he's communicated with Dominic Perrottet in in New South Wales and the state leaders across the board. I think it presents a very different dynamic than what we've seen before from our Prime Minister. And I think that that is exactly where we need to go. When we have all of these very big looming crises on our doorstep and none more so than climate change, we really do need our political leaders, those we elect, to do the heavy lifting and to enact change to be willing to do that and to be willing to have those conversations and not be driven by ego and not be driven by their own kind of ideology and personal agenda. And yeah, I do. I feel optimistic that Albanese is really kind of fulfilling that. One more point I just want to make on the federal election and, you know, the state of parliament at the moment is just 
the sheer diversity that we have there now. And I attended a budget event earlier this year at Parliament House and just seeing the number of senators and, and ministers who really come from all walks of life, who, you know, represent every corner of Australia, I think is so amazing to see as a as a culturally diverse woman myself. It was the biggest takeaway from that election. It was the thing I felt so uplifted by because you know that when you have that kind of representation in parliament, then issues that have, you know, previously gone unaddressed are going to be addressed in a better way. And I think that that was just so great to see. Mm. So, Ange, off the back of that very comprehensive rant on my part about my (laughs) optimism moving into the future and and certainly into Australia's political future, what were your biggest takeaways from the year, Ange? What do you feel good about? I'm sitting here just trying to figure out a way to kind of distill it all into something really clear and as optimistic as yours was because it was really nicely encouraging. I'm like, like we don't need to publish Women's Agenda anymore. We're done. No, we're not done. We're not done. Definitely not so far from done. Okay, so dictionary.com, we did a story on this last week. They put their word of the year as woman and it was really interesting and it was to highlight how women are rising and they didn't specifically mention any kind of example of women running for this kind of as independence and becoming part of this thing called the teal wave. Macquarie Dictionary did put teal as their word of the year, which is interesting, but I'll go back to the dictionary.com one. So women, that is what we've seen. Is this women rising in 2022? And that's happened here. And we saw that in the federal election. We saw as it is with more women running for office. But obviously we've seen it in Iran particularly, which has been pretty incredible to watch. We've seen it you know, in Ukraine where women are taking on the fight against the invasion in different ways and often moving from kind of having very regular lives that many of us could have probably related to only this time a year ago to being part of the defence of their country in whatever way that is. And we are seeing that in many other parts of the world, I might say, particularly on the climate movement and what we saw at COP27, not so much with women being represented in the key negotiating area, because that unfortunately didn't happen, but particularly elsewhere and making sure that they're getting heard, making sure that various agendas are getting put on the table and that there is a gendered response on climate action, which there isn't really at the moment, but we are getting a lot of noise to make that happen. And I think out of all of this, We sort of get this collaboration, I think, collaboration. So I think we see great examples of collaboration and this is what happens from more diversity, I think. So more women but more diversity in general in parliamentary positions but also in other key decision-making positions in leadership, on boards and elsewhere. And we saw so many examples. So, you know, you might say the crossbench, they've collaborated really well, they've negotiated together well the integrity bill that came out is a really fine example of that, you know, led by Helen Haynes, following on for the legacy of Kathy McGowan and good work in terms of coming together, negotiating with that crossbench to put on path for Australia finally getting that federal integrity body. I spoke to Helen Conway last week who is running as an independent for the New South Wales state election next year and that's what she said. She's like, I've actually seen that the crossbench can make things happen. It can be quite productive. It can really do things and make a difference. So that was interesting that that's being noticed and people are seeing a way to be a part of that. Um, Just before the Jobs and Skills Summit earlier this year, first of all, there was a lot of collaboration that occurred at that summit, but I remember writing a piece about an interview that happened on the ABC featuring 
you know, two women leading very different organizations and representing very different interests and coming together in a debate style interview and clearly disagreeing on a few things, but actually demonstrating respect for each other and actually highlighting a couple of points that they were kind of working together on and collaborating on. And that was Jennifer Westacott, the CEO of the Business Council of Australia and Sally McManus, the Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. So not your typical brunch buddies, but two of the most powerful people in the country. And I remember seeing that interview and maybe it was that sense of optimism, feeling like there was something new here, something that highlights how different interest groups can work together and can achieve something. You know, you mentioned Perite and the Albanese government, so the New South Wales Liberal government and the Albanese government federally collaborating. We saw a press conference on that yesterday and it just this sort of different kind of tone in terms of how that all happens. And the final little one just from the past week, so Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, you would have seen, I'm sure everyone saw that she accidentally was heard calling a fellow parliamentarian <laughs> an arrogant prick and... <laughs> We've all been there. (laughs) We've all been there. I mean, I haven't said it on a microphone about you, but like, you know. Not about you, no. We've all, yeah. Yeah. We've all been there. We don't necessarily get caught out. Perhaps we should get caught out. Adern apologised and she has since teamed up with said arrogant prick. And how bad is this? I do not have his name in front of me right now. but he does have a name Uh, (laughs) and they are working together to raise money for charity now. So collaboration, there you go. It's, it is possible to achieve something with people you don't particularly like. Yeah. Who would have thought? Tell that to Elon Musk though. (laughs) I don't know who gets along with him. Everyone just says yes to him. Should they wish to be in his orbit or no to him? Should they wish to run a hundred miles away? (laughs) Which most approving um, to choose the the latter at this point. (laughs) Okay, so before getting into the interview, we also want to do a couple of predictions for the year ahead. 2023, in your optimistic frame of mind, what's your prediction for what is ahead? I don't know whether this is a prediction or a hope, but... I have recently, you know, been interviewing quite a lot of young women about their career aspirations and what they expect from their career path, from their future employers. And I have to say that I think their expectations are entirely reasonable. They want a workplace that gives them purpose, that gives them flexibility, that allows them to meet the responsibilities and derive enjoyment out of their life and out of their profession. And I think there has been some progress from employers moving towards more comprehensive policies that support that, which is is good to see. I, I do think, though, that there needs to be a more rapid evolution there because right now we know that we're facing a global talent shortage, but at the same time we have all of these amazing young women and women more broadly who are very capable of doing so much and we know that there's that gap there but we have this huge cohort of people that can fill that gap so what do employers do to better make sure that they're kind of meeting those requirements and really attracting and retaining the right talent so yeah I guess that that's my hope my hope for the future and to see in a bigger way next year is that employers 
consult in the right way, that they open themselves up to offering passport career pathways, to offering sponsorship, offering all kinds of policies that are going to better support not only their women but people more broadly and families particularly to live better lives. Okay, I think yes to an extent and one way that we see that coming out is through say like paid parental leave and I've spoken a lot to Emma Walsh about this from parents at work and family friendly workplaces and just seeing how large employers are really pushing to removing you know the labels from paid parental leave and looking at extending what they offer and trying to work at making it as accessible for for fathers as it is for mothers and as it is for everyone so really trying to push that aspect of it and I think we'll see more employers follow that in the future and that might be along the lines of what you're talking about there as well. So looking to the future, I think in terms of the global skills shortage, you know, we're seeing some a big shift there. Internationally, we're seeing a lot of job losses in the tech sector and I wonder how that will flow into Australia and across other forms of like corporate knowledge-style work, into professional services, into legal services. And I think, I mean, you mentioned Elon Musk there and there is that sense that people want to get away from that and we just see that there was a very strong yes vote for Elon Musk to step down as uh, CEO, sorry, he's not CEO, whatever he calls himself at Twitter, as head of Twitter. And chancellor of the universe. Whatever he, yeah, whatever he um, label he uses, maybe he'll just call himself something else. But, and he has basically said, okay, well, you know, he will step down as head of Twitter and I think he made an amusing joke about why would anyone want this job? And so we'll see how that goes. And I hope that the person who does take that job has a lot of, I don't know, possibly doesn't have caring responsibilities or anything else going on in their life and can really 100% dedicate themselves to it. But in saying that, I I look at what he's doing and um, I think he is so extreme with that push of hardcore leadership and it's so out there. But I also wonder if it is possibly normalising it and if there are other you know, CEOs and leaders who are watching that right now and thinking, okay, well, there's Elon over there. I'm obviously not going to be like that. I'm not going to do, you know, ultimatums to staff about whether or not they want to work here. I'm not going to make fun of firing a bunch of people. I'm not going to tell people that they have to be, you know, hardcore in their approach to work and all this other stuff. But, you know, I could probably stretch a little bit more in that direction because he's the extreme of it. And I'm not going to be that bad, but, you know, maybe I could be a little bit worse. So, um, and I, I kind of like, okay, well, how will that flow on, especially in sectors where maybe there does start to, things start to tighten in terms of the jobs market. But I guess my prediction, is that a prediction? No, my prediction is more actually about the care sector, which I might say is not so much over there. It's not um, obviously professional services work or legal services or in tech. So looking to the care sector and earlier this year, the recent findings in the skills priority list that was released by the federal government was at four of the top 10 in-demand professions for the next five years directly relate to the caring economy. And they you know, are professions, as we've reported, that also happen to be uh, recording significantly high rates of burnout and frustration for those working there. So all that burnout and frustration will continue. And I am talking about early childhood teachers, registered nurses, childcare workers, and aged and disability carers. So the need for those jobs is not going to go away, but I don't know that enough is being 
done at the moment to ensure that people will stay in those jobs and to ensure that people will uh, go and get qualified for those positions as well. So we are going to be continuing to face some really big shortages there. And I think it's interesting how it'll pan out because if we do have a tightening of the job market in certain types of work and then, you know, still massive talent shortages in other forms of work, particularly female-dominated forms of work, that will be really interesting to see over the next year. Yeah, I think that that is a solid prediction. And it's a really nice way to segue into the interview that I recorded last week with Kirsten Ferguson. So Kirsten has a new book out. It's called Head and Heart, The Art of Modern Leadership. It is so currently open for pre-orders coming out at the end of January. And prior to reading, you can actually go and do this free online survey, which we talk about during this conversation and kind of get a bit more of an understanding of your leadership style, which is quite handy before you go and read the book as well. So I've taken on board a lot of what Kirsten has to say about leadership over the past few years. I remember doing a webinar with her just as COVID was creating lockdowns and she spoke about what leaders need to do. And it was just really solid advice, you know, particularly noting things like the power of radical transparency during these periods of uncertainty. And it was just really interesting to take on. And I hope that people did take on some of her key ideas and advice then. So Kirsten has had a 30-year executive career. She has a PhD in leadership. She was previously in the Air Force and she was previously also the deputy chair of ABC. All the credentials to talk about this topic. And I had many questions to her, including about some of the big names of leadership from the past year, Jacinda Ardern, Volodymyr Zelensky, Vladimir Putin, and Elon Musk. So we will go to that interview now. So great to have you here, Kirsten, and thank you for your excellent book. I would like to start with the concept of everyday leadership, if I can, the idea that everyone can be a leader, because I am very much on board with that idea. And I like to think that about uh, myself, not only in business, but about in terms of family, in terms of community. And also, I think we just see that out there a lot. But I am also reflecting on the year that we've just had given that we are recording this in the lead up to Christmas. And so obviously I'm thinking about Australian politics and a few things we learned regarding the former prime minister and his secret ministries and the lack of transparency there. Thinking internationally about uh, Putin and Trump, about the cheap tricks that some in power use to score votes in elections. And I'm thinking about Elon Musk a lot. So. <laughs> oh, no, I feel fear, Angela. who just got booed on stage for almost 10 minutes as he was introduced by comedian Dave Chappelle for an event in New York. And he was so uncomfortable, like any of us would be, but I think he more so than others because he's not used to having people push back around him. Exactly. And I just look at him and it seems to be doing everything possible to see Twitter implode, to take on this fight against political correctness and promote the idea of you know his version of free speech. So these, I guess, are leaders and examples with formal titles that can be a real turnoff when it comes to the very idea of leadership or ever even thinking that you're a leader. I sense, I sense that for some people. So, I mean, putting all that in context, I guess this everyday leadership, would you see it as a way Everyday leadership, modern leadership, if I can use those two interchangeably, maybe I can't, but do you see them as a way to counter all of this? Is it possible to counter all of this? 
Yeah, it absolutely is possible. And, and you've touched on so many different concepts there. So let's try and break it up a little bit. Everyday leadership, I am a firm believer, is possible from everyone. And whether you like it or not, you are leading. It's just whether or not you realise it and how effective you want to be. And one of the impetuses for writing my new book was during the pandemic, I remember being at Woolies and seeing one of the checkout operators who was no more than like 19 years old. And if you remember back to that time, everyone was tense and everyone was stressed and they're all getting their toilet paper and things like that and she just led in a moment where she had to deal with a difficult customer and she has no authority she had no formal title no staff you know she would have been the most junior person in the Woolworths checkout team at that stage and yet she was able to act with grace in a really difficult time and that's just one simple example and we can all think of relatives we've got who have no titles, our mothers, our grandmothers, whoever it might be. Uh, and that is what everyday leadership is about. So I wanted to write a book that reminds everyone we're all leaders. And then I want to remind everyone that we've all got the capacity to be great leaders if we can lead with our head and our heart. And those examples you gave, that's not what they're doing. And so you mentioned Putin. On the other side of that war is Volodymyr Zelensky. Mm -hmm. And he is a fantastic example of a modern leader. Jacinda Ardern obviously gets mentioned a lot. And they've both got formal titles, but they manage to wield their authority in a way that really integrates who they are as humans and not just using the authority of what is given to them through that title. Yeah, I mean, I know that you brought them out as two examples that worked really nicely. And I'd never really thought of those two leaders in terms of their similarities, but they do have similarities. And there was a line, and I, I think I've, I've read this elsewhere as well, regarding his inaugural address in 2019, when he said, you know, don't hang photos of me. I'm not an icon. Hang your kids' photos instead and look at them each day. You are making a decision. Absolutely. Which I love that line. I mean, I might say one thing I thought about with Adern and Belinsky on reading that little section was their use of social media as well. And that maybe there's, is there creativity or what, what is it that links them that they're doing so successfully there? So what I think they both show is they're humble leaders. So they're not afraid of being seen, you know, Jacinda Ardern in her tracksuit on a sofa with baby vomit on her shoulder, that she knows that doesn't impact her ability to lead effectively. I think they're both very self-aware of the impact their words and actions and behaviours have on others. And Zelensky has definitely shown that through tangible things like wearing the same sort of green T-shirts and combat gear that people of Ukraine are wearing you know he's done that consistently in his language he's very aware of the language to use when he's addressing the US Senate as compared to the House of Lords in the UK mm. um, and I think both of them show courage and empathy I mean empathy is such a misunderstood quality of leaders it's not sympathy it's not pity it's not compassion and it's not allowing someone else's situation to impact your leadership but it's really trying to lead and include voices different to your own and understanding that you need to put yourself in the shoes of others to really understand what's missing from a room as well as you know what you're hearing and that's right in your face. Mm. If I ask you about that example where you shared about the young woman in Woolies and I think we can all think of that example as well, particularly in hospitality. I recall seeing that kind of thing a lot where you just see somebody step up and have to sort of 
talk about or push back on a customer who says they don't want to check into the venue or something like that. And I remember thinking, wow, all these people just got given all these additional responsibilities and just have to step up. I saw it in our local early childhood education centre where I think about the centre director, who is obviously a leader and has worked her way up to that position, but how she suddenly had to take on and make decisions about certain elements of dealing with parents and the health advice and the risks and the risk to staff and things like that. And again, as they're going through staff shortages now, these incredible decisions that they wouldn't have had to face pre-pandemic, which maybe we never thought people would have to face later on. Yeah. The woman at Woolies, I mean, she hasn't gone to any Harvard business leadership courses, I presume, by that age. So is there something innate in her? Yeah, I think she showed a lot of courage um, and a lot of wisdom. And some of the qualities that I write about in the book, the most important for a modern leader is what's called perspective, Mm. which is basically in layman's term, being able to read a room. And she read the room. She read how to manage a difficult situation and leave a positive legacy. But I also wrote this book thinking about like a single mum at home starting a jewellery business from her kitchen table, they are leading in the decisions they're making for their families, for their businesses, how to support their um, children in a way that I think we've never really appreciated. And while this book, um, you know, I interview people like the CEO of BHP, so one of the largest companies in the country, yet equally alongside activist leaders and academics and people we don't normally uh, necessarily celebrate as leaders. So I think the bottom line for me is that leadership is simply a series of moments and that checkout operator had a moment and we all have different moments and it's our choice to leave as positive a legacy as we can in those moments and that's what I mean by everyday leadership it's how you react and we we don't always get it right modern leaders don't always get it right but we're humble enough to know that we are going to make mistakes and we're going to do it differently next time Mm. you know I called this book head and heart the art of modern leadership and the art is knowing what's needed when and being able to integrate the leader you are at home with your family with the leader you are at work and I think we'll all think of times where we've had to put on the suit of a corporate job or whatever it might be and think that we have to be someone slightly different than we are elsewhere yet modern leaders like Jacinda Ardern or Volodymyr Zelensky or Sachin Adela who runs Microsoft they've really perfected this ability to integrate their leadership in all aspects of their life and I think that's what makes us gravitate towards them because we trust and we know they're authentic and those leaders you stated at the very beginning the Trumps and the Putins and the Musks and all of those, I think if it came down to it, we don't trust them because we know what we're getting on the outside isn't necessarily what we might see at all aspects of their life. Mm. Um, you mentioned Nadella there, the CEO of Microsoft. I think I've written about him on empathy and I know you had a line about him as well, um, probably a lot about him actually on empathy around how he says that you know he loves ideas and things but ultimately empathy keeps him grounded and centered and I mean I think he might be one of the earlier CEOs to talk about empathy would that be right or had you heard that come up a lot previously no he definitely is someone who has marked a profound change in what we expect of leaders of large multinational corporations I think there's been leaders forever who have shown empathy Um, but often the leaders we've celebrated for the last couple of hundred years and I open the book sort of talking about how we got here is that this great man theory of the Mm. 19th century and I mean god what a waste of time that was but Mm. it was the idea that you know only some men by the way not 
all men, but, you know, men were born leaders and they were the men who were born into power and privilege. And they're the men, if you look in the history books, we've celebrated the explorers and the corporate titans and things. And no, they never spoke about empathy. And that continued all the way through, even in the 1980s when we had the, the Wall Street types, you know, the Gordon Geckos, you never heard them talking about empathy. So I think it is a relatively new phenomenon in this century. But I also think the introduction of women being recognised as really important leaders with formal authority, but also acknowledging the women who are around us every day, that's where we're seeing empathy and leadership really um, come to the fore. And the pandemic is where it really showed. We all know those leaders who made us feel better about what we were going through and those who had a total empathy deficit and, Mm. you know, certainly didn't make us feel good at all. Yeah, because on empathy, my next question was going to be if it was leaders who changed the idea that leading with empathy will help in your success or if it was circumstances. And I know that the pandemic obviously brought it to the fore. Perhaps it's the demographic shifts as well. You mentioned more women getting into leadership positions or more kind of what we think of stereotypical leadership positions. So what do you see as part of the shift in terms of appreciating empathy, uh, looking for empathy, having you know CEOs like that of Microsoft talking about empathy? I think there's an expectation you know that we want our leaders to just be human and it shouldn't be too much to ask and you know I do a lot of executive coaching and the leaders um, I often work with are technically brilliant you know they've got every industry bit of knowledge you could possibly expect but they're capped out in their progression because they're not human in how they lead and you know there's empathy is a whole topic we could talk about because having too much empathy is not a good thing either so it's one of those qualities we really need to understand well and balance and that's the art of being a modern leader but I do think our expectations of leaders and who we celebrate as leaders has changed fundamentally and the Mm. pandemic has probably accelerated that. Another aspect of the art of leadership, I really liked this one. It sounds obvious now, but I don't think I'd necessarily thought about it, was curiosity. Well, I mean, and curiosity, you would appreciate that, I'm assuming. Mm. And I know you did. Anyone listening can go on to headheartleader.com and test your own levels of all the qualities of head and heart leadership. It's completely free. And um, curiosity is the one that often scores the highest. And you as a journalist, I'm pretty sure your curiosity would be high as well, Angela. But curiosity is essential and like we're born with it, but research shows us that most employers diminish our ability to be curious and we do that through bureaucracy or through creating environments where we fear asking questions or trying something new. And being curious is not just about some things, it's about anything. And if you do a Google search while you're watching the white lotus to see who some actor is you know you're being curious and there's different types of curiosity there's intellectual curiosity where you're just genuinely interested to see how something might work or there's emotional curiosity which is understanding why people are how they are all of that is important for leaders and being curious is not about peppering people with questions so that they're terrified to come and sit with you it's just being genuinely and authentically interested in what people have to say and looking for perspectives that are different to your own, being able to rethink what you thought you knew. And you need to be humble to be curious. And that's why curiosity is a head-based leadership attribute for a head and heart leader. But you need to balance that with being humble about what you learn and being open to understanding that we don't know everything. And that's part of being curious. 
Because there's no point being curious and asking the question if you don't actually want to hear the answers, right? If you're, yeah. you're not interested in the other perspectives. So, yeah, don't yeah. bother. Uh, so, yeah, I did do the quiz and I encourage everybody to do that as well. It was 24 questions and I sent you a note, I think, afterwards. It was a little while ago and I said, I'm high on empathy but less courageous than I'd like. And I wrote, maybe empathy can get in the way of courage. What do you think <laughs> of that? Can empathy get in the way of courage? Is that what has happened to me where I went too high on one piece and then couldn't then get further on the other piece in terms of courage. Yeah, too much empathy is not a good thing. And Paul Bloom's written a great book called Against Empathy, and I'd encourage people to read that. And they've done all these studies where if you're told, you know, one child dying of cancer is in need of, you know, X thousand dollars for treatment, you're more likely to do that than when you're told there's 10 children who will benefit from the same amount because we fixate on, you know, the detail that we know. And I think what can happen if you're, over focused or more focused on empathy you might be more concerned about upsetting people's feelings or you don't want to step on toes and then that can diminish your courage to speak up for what you believe in and courage is all about us as leaders not only speaking up for what we believe even in the face of pressure not to do so but encouraging others to as well and celebrating them when they do and so yeah I do think there's a direct relationship between those so we can work about on that offline (laughs) build your courage I know oh I'm a bit terrified at how one goes about building their courage so (laughs) read the book there's some tips (laughs) I have taken on some of those tips already so thank you the book is excellent it's out at the end of January you're taking pre-orders now and you can also do the quiz yeah the address again for that headheartleader.com and a really important thing for pre-orders a competition that I'd love to be able to share with everyone listening is that if you pre-order just go to headheartleader.com and there's a competition you can win an hour coaching session with me or whatever you want to talk about Um, you just need to let me know where you've pre-ordered your book and I look forward to, to talking with whoever wins yeah, and again, do the quiz. You get the analysis instantly, yeah, yeah. which is really great to see. And so you can get some insights into yourself. And uh, I always think just answering those questions always makes you think. It's that element of being curious, I guess, as well. So it's always worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Headheartleader.com. And anyone who wants to hear more can just get in touch. Great. Thank you, Kirsten. It's really nice to talk to you again. Thanks, Angela. Bye. Thank you so much to Kirsten for that interview and a reminder about pre-orders for her book and to also go and check out that online survey. Tyler, it's our final day of work for the year, I think. I don't know. Apparently the news still happens even when we take time off, so we will see (laughs) across that. What are you going to be watching over the next few days or what happens that you'd like to leave as a bit of a thing for people to consider spending their valuable holiday time on over the next (laughs) I don't I've said this before and I'll say it again I don't think anyone ever should take um on board my recommendations for watching yeah I I don't I I definitely don't um I mean, I love, like, Jesse wrote this beautiful feature for us the other day about, you know, books of the year and two of my recommendations were cookbooks because that that is where my head is at. I am, I am reading cookbooks. Um, but <laughs> I have just finished the Harry and Meghan. Of Netflix course you have. Article. Don't you? Don't you? <laughs> like that. I told you to watch it. <laughs> I, I've just finished. I wrapped it up last night. And I have a slightly different perspective because most of what I've read about this documentary is that it's boring as batshit 
And I agree that there were a huge number of new revelations revealed, but I do think that it painted a better picture of what they were going through. And I think I understand their perspective in wanting to share it through their lens. I also think that now they should go and do the work that they want to do. They should, whatever charitable um, endeavours they've entered into, I think that that's where they should focus their energy and attention now um, rather than rehashing this story. Um, but when you're getting paid $56 million from Netflix to um, produce this doco, I don't resent them for doing it. I would have done exactly the same thing. I know you have a slightly different perspective, Ash, <laughs> um, but I, I came away from it feeling like, well, for starters, I don't care that much because I feel like, you know, it, on a scale of atrocities that happen in the world, Megan and Harry this saga, what happened to them is probably not very high on, <laughs> on my list of, um, you know, consideration. They they basically hold themselves up in a mansion owned by Tyler Perry for a long time and, um, you know, they have millions of dollars and a lot of resources at their disposal. But I do think that, you know, the picture painted of the British tabloids of the institution of the palace, it's pretty effed up, you know, and I think as a woman of colour entering into that, there was a lot that was driven by race and the fact that she wasn't of, you know, a particular social class of um, that she was a divorced woman and this trope carried through and, and I think that the way that she was ambushed by the media and the way that they I just I dug in for years with her and, and the headlines that were published uh, were really abhorrent. So I understand why they needed to pull away. I do think that Harry would have pulled away irrespective of Meghan, um, I should note as well. I don't think that he was ever going to stay in that establishment for the long haul. Um, so anyway, there you go. There's my very long tirade about Harry and Meghan. Go and watch it, if you will. Um, but, Ange, what do you reckon? Okay, so I did watch uh, Harry and Meghan and I will put this out there as somebody who's never really spent a minute having any interest in the Royals whatsoever. So this was uh, this was a bit out there for me. And one of the reasons why I was able to watch it is that it is really easy to watch with headphones in while you're doing other stuff, kind of like a podcast. You sort of know what they look like. It's fine. You kind of know the images that they're going to show. So it was easy to watch and clearly I was captivated by it because I did watch all six episodes of it. In fact, when I got to the fourth and I was, you know, they, they dropped the first three, I was like, where is the fourth? And I had to wait a week for it. So um, I was clearly captivated by it. My sense was, first of all, you know, I wrote a piece earlier this week about Jeremy Clarkson's disgusting opinion piece that was published in The Sun and the fact that somebody could feel the need to pen what he wrote about her and share that, you know, he is so consumed by hatred for her that he can't sleep. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Go and get some help, Jeremy, and just like that. And then, but, you know, for an editor to actually publish this diatribe of absolute crap that is really, you could definitely argue it does promote violence against women. It was absolutely disgusting. Um, so, you know, but you know, my whole thing, and I kind of wrote something about this that I haven't published, but 
and I don't think I will, um, <laughs> I just don't care enough, um, is the is the privilege there with Harry. And I, the whole time I'm left there kind of thinking, it, you're not utterly powerless in this situation. You did have access to so much that nobody ever has access to. You know, at one point he talks about the fact that he, he never had a choice over the life that he was born into and you, you don't get that. You, you, you're born into that life. We get that. But, you know, 100% of the population are born into a life that they have no choice over. That is reality. And I, I would dare say that a good proportion of them may wish for a different life. So, sorry, it, it is what it is. And, you know, and also that, you know, Megan was – she shared a lot about the fact that no one was there to tell her the the protocols or, you know, she talks about, you know, one of the first episodes is the first curtsy that she does to the Queen and you see like Harry in the background looking really awkward and I was looking at him thinking, where, where were you, Harry? You're, you are literally a prince. Why can't you help out here? <laughs> like why not explain the protocols to your girlfriend to your fiance or you know why not share some great youtube videos on how to curtsy to the queen i I don't know like maybe there's a little bit more that he could be doing and to just kind of take a bit more uh, responsibility for and just to uh, i mean i acknowledge that the privilege as well um yeah i might say there was another example there that he when he wore that nazi uniform to a party um at the age of 19 or something and obviously all the photos went everywhere and and he calls it the worst mistake of his life. And then he talks about the fact that he, you know, flew to Berlin to meet with Holocaust survivors and hear their story and, and all the regrets that he had. And then nothing else is mentioned about it. And I think, like, how many people have the opportunity to fly to Berlin to meet with Holocaust survivors to really kind of check in with, you know, their mistakes and to really go about and thoroughly educate? And under- like, people don't necessarily have that opportunity or that privilege. And I think just to acknowledge it. Uh, and the whole time, it's like, he always talks about them. And I, I'm like, who is them? Who, who is it? Who is it? What What is the, exactly the institution? And and I might also say we're hearing one side of the story. It's not an objective piece of journalism. We've we've heard a really, you know, beautifully shot, um, very, you know, spectacularly curated love story, as they put it. And, and it feels like a love story to me. I mean, you're sort of left being, you know, really annoyed at how in love they are almost because it's just so perfect but I I do think there's one side of the story there. I think that it was important for it to be told through their perspective though because all we've heard for the last four years is like bullshit vitriol against them that is entirely a different story it's coming from a completely different perspective so I I think that it was fair that it was a one-sided lens. Mm. Anywho, we're anyway, ending the year Harry, on Harry and Meghan. Harry. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Okay, that, that was the year that was. There you go. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me and all the best for 2023. I'm sure I'll be chatting to you. Merry Christmas, all of that. Uh, and to all of you out there, thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. Thank you to Alison Ho, who's on the call with us right now and has been producing the podcast and our other podcasts and does an excellent job. And thank you to all our team who are just so incredible and we just love the, the passion and the dedication every day to 
to coming up with story ideas and writing them and getting them published and helping out with everything else that goes on in our business. And thank you to our various partners across the year and to, of course, our readers and our listeners and all of that. A reminder that all the stories that we have discussed you will find on womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Thank you for listening. Till next year.